welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church, and many of our leaders and students just got back from our Rudy retreat. We had about 154 total people there, and it was just an amazing time. And so in light of that, we got back on Sunday. Uh, We decided to take this Wednesday off to give my leaders a break, but there were some student leaders that gathered the students for some worship, prayer, and the preaching of the Word. And so this is a sermon from that gathering by one of our seniors, Matthew Bloomquist, and uh, I was just super thankful for how it turned out, and uh, I know that it was encouraging to me to listen to, and I know it will be an encouraging uh, message for you. So it comes from Philippians 2. Enjoy the message, and God bless. We're squeezing in. This is great. Because of the rain, we are now in the basement, but we will make it work. I'm super excited. When I heard that there was no youth group Wednesday, I was like, what? I can sleep over three days. This will be fine. So we were like, I talked to Parker and Simon, and we're like, let's just get people together. This will be great. And uh, JT graciously allowed us to do this, and so um, I'm excited. I'm excited to see all you guys here. It's encouraging to my heart to see... Um, you guys, you guys didn't have to come, and even the leaders, you guys didn't have to come, but you came, and you wanted to be with your students, and wanted to worship, and so that fills my heart with joy, and so, well, who was at Rooted this last weekend? Pretty much most of you guys, that's great. So, at Rooted, what do we talk about? Somebody help me out. Junior higher. Oh, junior higher. What do we talk about? What were all the sermons about? What? Oh, louder. The holiness of God. The holiness of God, that's right. So Andrew brought us the word over Rudin. He did an amazing job. And we learned a lot about the holiness of God. And in the first sermon, we encountered, encountering a holy God. And that was based out of um, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord enthroned in heaven. And his response to seeing the holiness, the complete otherness of God, and that he is set apart, perfect. He says, woe is me, cursed is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. We learned that... We, learning about God's holiness, we learned about our own sinfulness and our own unholiness. I hear a cat. Look at the cat. Wants to <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so then that led us into his second sermon, Surviving a Holy God. We saw that because God is so holy, and we, we saw how unholy we are, and so how can unholy, sinful creatures be in the presence of a holy God? And we looked at different stories in the Old Testament, like Uzzah, who, when the ark was falling, he reached out to touch it to keep it up, and the Lord struck him down because of how holy and glorious he is. Or Nahab and Abihu, who offered strange fire or strange worship before the altar, and the Lord struck them down. And so we had a predicament, how we are sinful creatures, and the Lord is holy. How can we draw near to a holy God, which was his third sermon? And we looked at Moses, and I've used the mediator for the Israelites to go up to the mountain um, and represent the people to God and God to the people. And so we saw that the way, the only way that we can draw near to a holy God is through a mediator. But we saw Moses at the end of his life. Could he draw near to God in his temple? No. We need a perfect mediator. And the Lord has graciously provide, provided that for us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our eternal perfect mediator. And through faith... Through faith in Christ, we can draw near to a holy God. 
And even more than that, his third sermon was indwelt by a holy God. The only thing better than dwelling with a holy God is being indwelt by a holy God. And so we learn that those who put their faith and are united with Christ, as we talked about even in Ephesians a few weeks ago, have received then the Holy Spirit. And so today, along the themes of how, when we looked at Isaiah and he saw the holiness of God, he was humble. And when you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, a fruit of the Spirit is humility. And so along those lines, we are going to further our study and look at humility. What does it mean to be humble? And then we're going to look at Christ, the perfect example of humility. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, Paul and Timothy are the authors here at the Philippian church, the church of Philippi. So, Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the full accord and of, the, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, the first thing that I want to highlight to you guys is Paul's emphasis here on having one mind, or the unity of mind. And this starts back, if you look, in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. There we see it first, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There it is again. And then later in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's building an argument and he's like, guys, we need the church. Those who have received Christ by faith and repented of their sins, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are to have one mind. We need to have the unity of mind. And I always think of, like, thinking of the unity of mind. I always think of, like, sports teams. You think of, like, the greatest sports teams ever. Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan or um, Patriots with Tom Brady or other sports. I don't know what sports you guys like. But think of the greatest sports teams who have accomplished the greatest things together. The reason why they won the championships and were together is because they had the unity of mind. You see, like, teams where they're just full of players where I think of we had an Olympics one year with uh, where we sent like our best basketball players to the Olympics and our team was terrible because there were a bunch of superstars who were all selfish and wanting to be the all-stars themselves um, 
because it's unity of mind. When these four teams and the players have one goal and are striving side by side to achieve the championship, they work together. And Paul's saying here, the church, we are to have one mind, be of one mind. We are to be united in our thinking. And think of that. Think of how much of, the, of an impact we can have on the world around us for the gospel and for the kingdom of God if we were, having, if we were of one mind, striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. Think about in your schools and in your workplaces, even for the leaders. We need to be of one mind. And so that leads us to the next question is what is, and this is my second point, what is this one mind that we are to have? And so Paul answers that for us right away in verse 3. Have, starting in verse 2, sorry. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, Paul, what is this one mind that we should have? Here it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We need to have a mind of humility. And so, then that leads us to the next. I love reading Paul because when you read him, he like talks, he's talking to you, and then you're, he makes you ask these questions to yourself, and then he goes and answers them right away. So it's like, what is humility? And he lays out, he gives us three points on what humility looks like. First, in uh, verse 3, do, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What does it mean to do things from selfish ambition or conceit? I'm summarizing it by this. Doing things for goods or for glory. We can find ourselves doing this all the time. Doing good things to other people, serving other people, um, doing good deeds in our homes, in our youth group even, only to be seen by others and to receive their glory. And Jesus says that's what the Pharisees do. They do things to be seen by others, and they've already received their reward. And so to do things from selfish ambition or conceit, it means to do things to gain glory from others, not doing and obeying because the Lord has loved you and doing it out of a response to that love, and not doing things, good things to love our neighbors, but it's out of selfish ambition. And so then the next thing that he uh, defines humility as is follows in verse 3. Do nothing from self, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I was thinking, what does, it look, what does it truly look like to count others more significant than yourselves? And it brought me to Captain America. I love that movie. <laughs> All right, so Steve Rogers, before he even becomes Captain America, he's in this boot camp, right, with a bunch of different people, and they're trying to, dis they're trying to see who's the worthy one and who they're going to turn into this Captain America. I think I'm getting this right. It's been a while. All I remember, though, pretty much from that movie, watching this as a little kid, is... Um, they're going, they're in the boot camp, they're going through all these different, like, obstacles, right? And then they get to the one where all of these people are, like, standing around, and the, and the, uh, generals, or whatever you call them, leading them through the obstacles, they throw a grenade. They throw a grenade in the middle of it. And this is right. Do you guys remember this from Captain America? Yeah. And so what happens when they threw the grenade into the group of the men? What did most of the people do? They started running away. But what does Steve Rogers do? The, this little, he's like the wimpiest out of all of them. What does Steve Rogers do? He jumps on the grenade. And I thought, what an awesome picture of counting others more significant than yourself. And so that's just an awesome illustration there of what it looks like. We need to count others more significant than ourselves. And it's crazy when we think of how significant we think of ourselves. How often do we seek to satisfy our own needs and desires above other people? As much as we consider ourselves significant, Paul is saying, 
every inward glance and every time you look to see your own need, you ought to uh, count others as even more significant and look outwards a thousand more times. And so we need to count others more significant than ourselves in all things. And then the third reason, or the third thing under the category of humility. What is humility? It's let, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think even within your families, I'm sure you can pinpoint times this week, I can, of in my family, or even in my friend group, the people who I love the most, whether it's what movie you're going to watch, where you're going to go eat, um, what chore to do, so many times we can put our own interests above our friends and our families, and we seek to do um, what we want to do over, in humility, looking to other people's interests and counting their opinions and their interests as more valuable than our own. Think of even on a Wednesday night, I want to go play volleyball, I want to go play basketball, I want to hang out with my friends, and yet there's a student over here who is hanging out all by themselves. What does humility look like? It's counting their interests more than your own. Sacrificing what you want to do for the good of your brother or sister. So this is what humility, that's what humility is. Paul first defines humility for us. And then, if that doesn't show us what humility is, Paul now, going into my third point, shows us the perfect example of humility. If he first defined what humility is, he now shows us who humility is. And he points us to the person of Jesus Christ. So read with me, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to pause there. I love how he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. He's talking to believers. This is your mind. Now you, you have received this by faith and so walk in it. This is your mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ is the greatest example of humility. And before we can even begin to scratch the surface of the depths of Christ's humility, we must first see the heights of his glory before he even took humanity to himself. Think of God in heaven, completely sufficient in and of himself, in and of the Godhead, completely satisfied, not bound to time or space, cannot suffer, has no pain, completely content, all-knowing, all-powerful. This is who God is, and this is what he stepped down from to take on human flesh. So first, seeing in the Christ's example of humility, we must first see his glory first, because we cannot see, we cannot even begin to see his humility until we see the heights that he stepped down from. And so first, see the glory of Christ before his humility. And now, take a look at um, verse 7. Christ, he has emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He was not born in the likeness of angels. He was not born in the likeness of the cherubim or seraphim, but he was born in the likeness of man. As Simeon read earlier in Hebrews 8, he took on human, sinful flesh. Not that Christ was sinful in and of himself, but flesh which is subject to pain and suffering. 
as a result of the fall. This is what Christ has taken on. Charles Spurgeon says that if Christ were to condescend to take the form of the cherubim or the seraphim, that would have been an infinite humiliation within itself. Those are the highest of angels designed to worship God. And he's saying if Christ were to take the form of those, that would have been an infinite, infinite humiliation. And yet, no, he's descended even farther to the likeness of human flesh, which David says, we are but worms. And Abraham says, we are but dust and ashes. And this is, the, this is the depths that Christ has descended to. He has taken humanity to himself. So first, we must see the example of Christ by seeing his glory. Then, his humility in taking human flesh. And then, I want to look at the humility of Christ in his birth. Look at verse 7. But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Even the birth itself of Christ is such a great, incomprehensible act of humility. How could it be that the eternal God of life, I'm going to read in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and when it's talking about Word, the Word is talking about Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. How can it be that the eternal God of creation, who's created Mary, is now confined into her own womb? How the creator and the God of life, outside of time and space, is now, has physical hands. The self-sufficient God is now completely sufficient, or completely um, reliant upon his earthly parents whom he has created. How can it be that Jesus Christ, all-knowing, has now come to this earth, taken flesh to himself, and it says that he grew in wisdom and stature? This should blow our minds to see God himself, fully God, fully man. What humiliation. And he wasn't born in riches. This is Jesus Christ. This is the King of the Jews who is fully God. This is the seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis 3 who has come to redeem Israel. All of the Israelites thought that this king would lead them with great armies, with great riches. But what do we find? God himself, born in a manger, a feeding trough, with animals in a disgusting place, no room to lay his head. This is humility. This is what Christ has taken upon himself voluntarily because of his love for us poor sinful creatures see the humility of Christ in his birth and now see the humility of Christ in his life Christ lived a life of humility it says he was in verse 7 by taking the form of a servant Christ was not the hot, uh, just the head of his class he was a servant he lived a life of humble servitude think of all the people within Christ's ministry, who are the people that Christ was constantly running to? Was it the highest people with the most authority, with the most riches? No, it was the outcasts of society that people wouldn't even look upon. They, they were the untouchables. People wouldn't touch them. The blind, those with leprosy, the sick, the poor. These were the people whose Christ heart was for, that he ran to because our Savior is gentle and lowly. See the humility of Christ even in his life. And even among his disciples, his disciples knew that he was the Son of God. They've seen his miracles. They've confessed him as the Son of God, the longed-for Messiah. And yet, Christ is the one who stooped even lower to 
to wash his disciples' feet. Christ's whole life was marked by humility. And now, just as you think that he couldn't descend even farther, yet he has. Christ has humbled himself even in his death. Starting in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can it be, again, that the eternal God of life, in him is life, and life abundantly, now slain by death. Come behold, there's an awesome song I love called uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And one of the lines in it says, Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. That's a paradox. That should blow our minds. How can it be that the God, the eternal God, who has no beginning and no end, has chosen to take on human flesh and die, to be slain by death, to offer eternal life to us, slain by death, the God of life. What great humility. But Christ did not die just an ordinary death. He did not die of old age or of natural causes. No, he died on the Roman cross. And Paul highlights that. He says, he adds it because it's so important. He became, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why the cross? Why is the cross so significant? The cross was the most disgusting and gruesome and horrifying form of torture and the most humiliating form of torture where people would, and Isaiah says of Jesus, you couldn't even recognize his face because of the torture that he endured. But even more than the physical torture, we see in Deuteronomy, God promises and he says, cursed, cursed is anyone who hangs upon the tree, prophesying about the Roman cross that Jesus Christ would one day hang on. Jesus Christ became a curse for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think of Isaiah. What was Isaiah's response when he saw the holiness and the glory of God? He says, Woe, cursed is me. Jesus Christ on the cross took that and applied it to himself. He said, Cursed is me. He became a curse for our sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. We were the ones who were stricken, we are the ones who struck him and beat him and mocked him and yet see the humility of Christ to die for even us poor sinful creatures the ones who have hung him on the cross what humility for Christ to die upon the cross how can we not look upon the humility of Christ and now humble ourselves under his mighty hand and be, humble ourselves before others look to see the, the depths that Christ has gone to ransom you from your sin See how undeserving you are, how undeserving I am of his death, and imitate that. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, Beholding Christ, we are transformed into his same image. Behold the humility of Christ, and be transformed into his same image. Humble yourselves, humble yourselves as you see how undeserving you are of the gospel, of Christ's sacrifice. And humble yourselves before others considering them more significant than yourself, as Christ has done. Christ is the perfect fulfillment of that. Christ has done nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Christ has counted, always counted others more significant than themselves. Christ never looked to his own interests, but always the interests of others. So behold, behold the humility of Christ, and humble yourselves under his mighty hand, and humble yourselves before each other. 
And now, we could talk about the humility of Christ for all eternity. And we will. We will be singing of the humility of Christ for all eternity. But Paul does not end here. He ends on a high note. No pun intended. We're about to talk about the exaltation. So, um, (laughs) read with me in verse 9. Therefore, circle that word, therefore. Anytime you see this in your Bible, this is huge. Saying, in light of the fact... Because, because Christ has humbled himself in his life, in his birth, and in his death, in, the light, in light of this, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think of in... Um, in America, we have the, the Medal of Honor, which is the, the award for um, the most uh, self people who the most selfless people in our army who've done cur- just insanely courageous acts to um, love those around them, and so they received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award in America in our army. And in the same way, Christ is giving the highest award. To Christ, because Christ has done the greatest work of humiliation. He's, God the Father has looked upon the sacrifice of Christ and has been appeased. His wrath was satisfied. And he has looked upon Christ and said, Well done, good and faithful servant. And so now he is awarding him with the highest of awards, seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominions. And he has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. No king, no person. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but the name of Jesus will stand forever. He has the highest name, and he will receive the highest praise. Because this is what Christ deserves. And this is God's gift to Christ. And we are a part of that gift. We are Christ's bride. And all whom Christ has died for, we will worship him for eternity. Christ will receive receive the highest reward. He's already, he is seated in the heavenly places now, in the highest authority, with the highest power, and will receive the highest praise. In verse 10 it says that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, not some knees should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It is not enough praise to Christ for some knees to bow and some tongues to confess, but every, every knee, that includes all of us, we are a part of this every, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So will you, will you bow the knee now and confess Jesus Christ is Lord now out of a heart of love and affection, seeing his beauty and his glory and his humility? Will you bow the knee and confess him as Lord? You have his promise. He says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I urge you, call upon the name of the Lord now and bow your knee. Bow your knee out of love and affection. Or one day when you face him on judgment day, he will force every knee to bow before the throne. And he will say to some, depart from me, for I have never known you. So bow the knee now out of love and affection, seeing his humility and his love and his heart for you to plunge onto the cross in death for you. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, talking about Jesus, kiss the son lest he be angry. Kiss the son now out of love and affection for what he's done for you. Not with a kiss like Judas of betrayal and hatred, which confesses with your mouth but does not believe in your heart. 
but bow the knee now and exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Just as the Father has looked upon Christ and exalted Him in heaven, how much more should we? We should exalt Christ. Exalt Him for His humble life in your place. Exalt Him for His humble death in your place. Exalt Him for your, His advocacy as He is sitting in heaven even now. You saints, brothers and sisters, He is pleading for you and He is praying for you. You have an advocate in heaven interceding for you with groanings too deep for words. So exalt the Christ. Exalt Him not only with your lips, exalt Him with your lips. As we go in song after this, exalt Him with your lips, but not only with your lips, but with your heart. Exalt Him. Let all that is within you praise the Lord.